This morning we're going to change course a little bit. We're going to divert away from Genesis. I started feeling uh, yesterday morning, I guess, a little bit just given the events of this past week in our country as if perhaps it would be an opportunity for us to think about um, to think about the events of this week and to think about how we as citizens of the kingdom of God might best response uh, respond uh, to these circumstances and to the situation. So unless you've been living in a cave for the last uh, 72 plus hours, uh, you know that um, we've had a number of events the life of our country this past week, which kind of caught our attention. And, um, and so I want us to think about that. And I want us to do it from John chapter 11. Um, John chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 17 down through 44. It's a passage you would normally uh, associate with a funeral. But we're, um, we're going to be looking at it from the standpoint of what it offers us in terms of Jesus dealing with tragedy. So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Let me read for us God's Word. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. And then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, and his hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let me pray. Fathers, we come to this passage this morning. We pray that you would give us wisdom and that you would work in our hearts. Father, we're heavy for our country. We're heavy for those who are hurting. And so we pray this morning that you would show us how we might be citizens who bear the gospel in ways that are appropriate for those around us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As with everything that happens in our lives, we, I hope when things are happening in your life, one of the reflections that you have is, okay, Lord, I see this happening. How can I respond in a way that reflects well on you, the church, and, and reflects your glory to the world around me. How how can I do this differently? Um, I tend to think that about just average ordinary things that happen in family life and our family, and that's how can I do this differently? I'm not always successful at doing it differently, but I like to ask the question, how can I do this differently? How can I do this in a way that will be better both for my family and for me and for the glory of God? Because I'm, because I'm a kingdom citizen, right? I could continue down the same path that I have tread for a long time. Um, I could continue to walk in the old flesh. I could t- continue to walk as the old man, the old Sam walked. Or I can ask the question, Lord, how can I live differently Given what I know about you and your kingdom and the work of your son, how can I live differently in this situation? And so I hope that um, as you've watched the news, as um, you've kind of taken in, not just this past week, let's just take the last year, numbers of events in which um, our attention is raised Uh, to situations in our country, how can we live differently in light of that? In John 11, the death of Lazarus gives us Jesus' response to what's a tragic loss of life in the community in which Mary and Martha, their friends, lived. I want us to come to this passage. I've titled it, Do You Believe? We've got four points. Do you believe, one, that Jesus entered our pain? 
Two, that Jesus experienced our anguish. Three, that Jesus evidenced our answer. And four, that Jesus eradicated the problem. So let's just start with the first one. And I will say this. This is not, these are not the only things you can say in response to what has happened in our country this week. All right? We can say lots of things. I've got a, I've got about 20 minutes. Um, and so what can I say in 20 minutes that I hope will give you some direction as you think about your individual's response and we think corporately about our response to the world in which we live? One, do you believe that Jesus entered our pain? The passage contains, this passage we've just read, contains that shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept, verse 35. Mary and Martha had both approached Jesus. They had both gone to him. And when they got there, each of them asked him the same, or made the same basic statement. What is their statement? Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Jesus, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. I will just tell you. There are a lot of people that look at the world, they look at tragedy, they look at chaos, they, they look at the rampaging, they look at uh, injustice, and they say, see, there's no God in the world. Mary and Martha are saying nearly the same thing. Jesus, if you had been here, this situation would not have occurred. And there are people in the world that use the chaos of the world, that use the struggle in the world to point out, see, there's no, if there was a God, these sorts of things wouldn't happen. Jesus is in the world and he is in this situation. And that is, uh, in, in terms of the religions of the world, Christian theism, gives us the greatest encounter with God possible. Because God didn't just wind us up and send us ticking off into the universe. He wound us up, and then at the point of our greatest need, while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Jesus died for us. He entered the world. He came down. He tabernacled among us. He lived in our midst. And he didn't just live here. He went through life. Every aspect of life. And so one of the things that you're seeing here is that Jesus entered our pain. God entered into the situation and he entered into our pain. Let's just take it one step further. Think about what it is that Jesus is doing here, right? Mary and Martha are challenging him. He is just there. And and essentially the first thing that is taking place is that Jesus is identifying with their pain and their sorrow. Verse 35, he wept. The God-man cried with those who were crying. He mourned with the mourners. Jesus doesn't show up and, and listen, one of the, the oft asked questions is, who sinned? There are several examples in the Bible in which the first question that is asked is, who sinned? This man or his parents? Who caused this? That's the first question we want to ask, right? Who did this? 
Instead, Jesus shows up, and it's as if he just wraps his proverbial arms around everyone there, and he mourns with them. Sometimes better to do than to jump in and try to figure out everything. His initial, his initial response is to enter their pain. It's a good place to begin. Become a mourner. Become a mourner. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Guess what? There is much to mourn in the world. There's just, there's much to mourn. Mourn the loss of life. Every single person that, that died in the events that you and I are familiar with this week, and many others beside them, every single person that lost their life this week made in the image of God. Every one of them made in the image of God. There is much to mourn about when images of God are dying. Lots of people are rushing in to fix problems. Lots of people are rushing to fix blame. Lots of people are choosing up sides. And What if the children of God, what if the citizens of God's heavenly kingdom just mourned for a little bit? What if we just had a moment of sadness and said, uh, my mom told me I can't use that word. What if we just said, this stinks. This is hard. This is not easy. This is painful. This is ugly. What if we just mourned? That's what Jesus did. He came and he met the sisters and he saw the wailers and he heard the mourning that was going on and he went to the tomb and he cried. How about let's cry? How about let your heart be a little soft for everyone? Everyone involved. I wasn't here when Marion preached Genesis 23. In Genesis 23, 2, Sarah has died. The text says that Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. 2 Samuel 1, verse 11 and 12, And David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They had just learned about the death of Saul and Jonathan. They mourned and they wept and they fasted till evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. One of the Glories of the new heavens and the new earth will be that there will be no more weeping. There will be no more sorrow. But the implicitness of that is that there is. And it's okay.
And it is okay to mourn. And it is okay to weep. We don't do it as those without hope. We do it as those who have a great and eternal hope. But we mourn. So here's my encouragement. See it for what it is. Every last incident, a tragedy. And mourn. Here's the second thing. Do you believe that Jesus Jesus experienced our anguish? You'll notice that when he heard about Lazarus' death, he went to the tomb. The passage also tells us not only that he wept, but that he got angry. He went, and he it says it twice. First, that he was deeply moved in his spirit and that he was troubled. The best translation, as one commentator has pointed out, might be that he was bellowing with anger as he came to the tomb. Bellowing with anger, he came to the tomb. One author identified two things that Jesus doesn't do in his anger. First, he doesn't blame anyone for not living right. Second, he doesn't demonize anyone. That's not what he does. Instead, his anger is focused elsewhere. His anger is focused on the tomb. He seems to turn his anger, his rage, if you will, on death itself, which means Jesus is looking at a bigger picture. He's looking at the situation. He's looking at the disease, death itself, the sickness, the problem, the rooted problem that, guess what, exists in every single human heart. And so he's looking at this overall picture of sin and what it does and the destruction and the death and the sorrow and the pain and the anguish. He sees all of that and he's angry. He's angry at the big picture. He's angry at the source of it all and what it does to us. What's troubling to him is the overall big picture. We are, we're, we're quick watching the news and reading the blogs and, you know, social media. We're quick. Everyone wants to assess blame. They want to find the culprit. They want, they want to see justice done quickly. The time is coming when all of that will happen. It'll be good. It'll be right. It'll be true. But right here, right now, in the midst of pain, Jesus enters into the anguish and he's angry. Sin has affected every area of life. In your life, you've seen it. You've known it. You've tasted it, you've smelled it, you've witnessed it in your neighbor's lives, in your friend's lives, and people on the pew as you sit here in the chairs next to you. We, we know it. And then we see it on the television and we hear it on the radio and we see and know, yes, it exists, it's there. The underlining problem 
is that the human heart is a wreck. Right? The human heart is a wreck. My heart is a wreck. Let's begin right there, personally. Understanding and knowing that were it not for the grace of God, I I would be in much worse shape than I'm already in. And Jesus entered into that, and he entered into the anguish of the people, and he saw the anger, and he experienced the anger, but he poured it out on the problem. He's upset by the problem. And the problem is sin. We want to root it out. We want to sniff it out. But let's begin right here in our own hearts, right here very close to home. Here's the third point. Do you believe that Jesus evidenced our answer? Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he asked her, do you believe this? Now, we usually do this at a funeral, right? Because right there at a funeral, someone has died and your mind is fixed on eternal things. Their minds were fixed on eternal things as well. Mary and Martha and all of that was taking place. Jesus tells Martha he's the resurrection and the life. And then he asks her, right then, do you believe this? And notice Jesus doesn't say to Martha, I am going to. Jesus hasn't died yet. He doesn't say, I am going to be the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life right now. Listen, if Jesus being the resurrection and the life has substantial meaning when he resurrects, then it means he has substantial meaning and he can bring substantial influence right this very minute. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say someday, a long way in the future, I'm going to come and I'm going to zap you out of this world and all this bad stuff and I'm going to pull you up into heaven and it'll be great and glorious. <coughs> That's true. Except he's going to zap you and you're going to stay right here on this new heavens and new earth that he's going to redo. But that's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. But here's the point. Right now. He said, I came to seek and save the the lost. He said, I came that you might have life and have it what? Abundantly. You would have abundant life right here, right now. Jesus wasn't saying, listen, believe in me and things will get better a long time in the future. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, it affects change right now, today. Listen. Jesus came and he set the world on its ear. He didn't come and like, okay, I've got, you've got salvation now. Just wait for the end. That's what you're hanging on for. You're just hanging on to the very end and once you die, then you'll get a little slice of heaven, a harp, and then you'll float around on clouds and it'll all be glorious. I always thought, what a boring picture of heaven that is, right? There's no harp and you won't be floating in clouds. You will be living 
But he came and he set the world on its ear immediately. And he said things to us. Right? How else can you explain his call to us to do some very radical things? Like, love your enemies. Pray for those who what? Persecute you. That's setting the world on its ear. That's taking what you know to be the norm and, and telling you, listen, you are going to, you are going to live life differently in my kingdom, not just way down the road, but right here, right now, today. You're going to live life differently. But you can only live life differently if what? You will only be able to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the resurrection and the life. And so he asked Martha, do you believe? And he's asking us, do you believe? You have to believe in him in order to experience that transformation. And the change occurs right now. He takes you from being a citizen of this country and he gives you a greater citizenship and that is of the kingdom of God in heaven. You become citizens with people from all over the world, all over the globe, every tribe, every nation, every color, every language, every everything. You meld into a different kingdom, a better kingdom, a greater kingdom. This is great. It's great to be a citizen. I love I love my country. I serve my country. Listen, I take greater stock, greater pride in being a citizen of the kingdom of God than I do the United States of America. That makes me a better citizen in the country that I do reside in. Because it has greater ideals. It allows me to be a citizen in this country that can be transformed formative in a way that I can't be if I'm just a United States citizen. Does that make sense? It kind of prepares me to be the best citizen possible because I understand that I am a part of his kingdom. Listen, Jesus talks about this. He talks about this kind of kingdom living really just in a straightforward way, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, 5, 6, 7. But in Matthew chapter 5, remember, he tells us that we're salt and we're light. And so he, he gives us this little challenge about how we're to live out into the world. And, and then he tells us a little bit later, he said, You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children, what? of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good. Listen to to the logic Jesus uses. He's telling us that we are children of our Father in heaven. And then He says, look, your Father in heaven causes the Son to rise where? On the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous you should go out and do the same. You should be as gracious to the world around you as your heavenly Father is gracious to the world around you. If you love those who love you, he says, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Jesus, listen, pagans can love people who are lovable. Your calling, our calling as citizens of a different kingdom is to love the unlovable. 
you and I can't go into the world and love the unlovable if we haven't been transformed. And you will only be transformed if you believe. i got to say this because I wrote it in my sermon. The... <laughs> The average bear can scream for justice and walk a picket line. Only the one who holds the light of the kingdom can move toward the ugliness of the world and mourn and love and have compassion on the sin-ravaged world that we live in. Do you believe? Final point. Do you believe that Jesus eradicated the problem? What Jesus did, fully and finally, was that he came down into our situation. He walked this earth. He lived as a man just as we do. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way, yet he was without sin. And then in all his perfection, he died as a substitute. Let me ask a question. You answer it. Who did he die for? He died for sinners. He died for the world. Okay? That's who he died for. Did they deserve it? No. Did they get it? Yes. What do we call that? Grace. Right? So, God came down. He evidenced his grace in the fact that he died for us. Listen, it's that grace. It's that grace that you get when you trust by faith in Christ, becomes a part of your DNA, and you are now a gracer. You now go out into the world, and you bear the grace that he gave to us. And guess what? It is that grace that changes the world that you live in. It's that sort of grace extended to your neighbors in your sphere of influence. That is that is what will change. Why? Because it's loving, it's kind, it's generous, it's merciful. It's all of those things. It is the answer for the world's problems. How do I know that? What was the answer for your problem? It was the graciousness God showed towards you. What is the answer for the problems of the sin-ravaged world we lived in? That we live in? It's grace. It's God's grace. And that grace is most clearly seen and known and experienced in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as you and I go out into the world and we love our neighbors, as we love those who hate us, we pray for those who persecute us, as we, as we feed the needy, as we clothe the sick, as we go to the prisons, as we, as we minister in those places, we change the world and God gets the glory. How do you respond? By believing that we have a God who loves us, who entered the world for us, who experienced our pain, our tears, who shares our anger and frustration at the sin of the world, who evidenced the answer and showed us the truth and then ministered grace to us. And I think that's a a great place to start as we think about how to live in citizens, as citizens of this nation. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to thank you that you've not left us to our own wisdom, our own devices, but you've given to us your word. And 
Father, I pray that we'll be thoughtful. And as thoughtful as we are, Father, may we be as active in the way in which we love and care for the world in which we live in. Help us. Enable us. Father, um, push us to do and be things that we're not readily willing to do and be. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.